Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 3, Episode 7. Today is Thursday, November the 1st, 2018. My name is Bradley Metrock. I am CEO of a company called Score Publishing based in Nashville, Tennessee. The sponsor for This Week in Voice, Season 3, is the Alexa Conference, the worldwide gathering of the Alexa development community, taking place January 15th through the 17th in Chattanooga, Tennessee, home of the nation's fastest internet. Most people don't know that. Four breakout tracks, Alexa in storytelling, Alexa in healthcare, Alexa in consumer marketing, and Alexa in smart home. A lot of great folks will be there. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Check it out www.voicefirst.fm slash Alexa conference. And we will link to that in the show notes. We are very pleased to have a fantastic panel today. Our first guest is Ann Weiler. Ann, say hello. Good morning. Ann, thank you for joining us. You are CEO of Wellpepper. Explain to us, uh, talk us through what Wellpepper is, what you do. Uh, share with us your background. Sure. Um, Wellpepper is a platform for interactive patient care plans. We're in the what's called the patient engagement space. So we help people follow instructions from their clinicians, from their doctors outside the clinic. And we do that in different types of modalities. So we have web, voice, uh, mobile, SMS, email interactions for patients. We try and meet them where they are. And we try and make it very engaging and interactive. And we're excited about voice because people really seem to want to continue the conversation and engage with voice. And they have a, an emotional attachment to these voice interfaces. And that emotional attachment is sort of key in the sharing of information and also the feeling of accountability if you're following along in a care plan. So I know I didn't give you an example there. Um, we work with large health systems who are managing all kinds of different um, situations with patients, whether that's managing a chronic disease like diabetes or preparing for and recovering from a surgery like a knee replacement. Excellent. I've seen your name, uh, your name personally, and Wellpepper's name popping up here and there and everywhere. All good stuff. You're doing amazing work. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Our second guest is Dr. Matt Sobolski. Matt, say hello. Good morning. Thanks for having me on The Week in Voice. I'm really pleased to be here to talk about the stories today. Yeah, and thank you for getting the name wrong, by the way. It's This Week in Voice. <laughs> Wait, what I call it? You said The Week in Voice. Oh, well, that was a very senior moment. I think I'm getting more grays. No, week. I'm going to give you grief at every chance I get. Matt, you are the co-host. <laughs> You're the co-host of The Voice of Healthcare with me. We go way back. Matt, share with us what you do um, and give us some of your background as well. I am a behavioral scientist. Uh, before I got into the voice tech world, I was working with a Fortune 500 healthcare delivery firm and a consulting house uh, separately. I've uh, also had a stint as a medical school professor working in safety and quality. So I went basically from finance to uh, psychology applied in healthcare to safety quality uh, to large strategy projects with a big four consulting house to uh, hanging out my own shingle. And I do similar work, um, basically have three different vectors, but mostly what I'm interested in doing is healthcare delivery consulting from 
the angle and uh, support of behavioral science to sustain change. So things like uh, the patient experience, compliance, readmission reduction rates, uh, patient engagement, even provider side engagement. Uh, so modifying protocols for providers. But I've been spending a lot of time lately uh, working with physicians and other organizations, connecting them to voice tech platforms to develop tools for them to orchestrate their day, increase the quality and efficiency of doing so, and kind of jumping on the train of voice tech in healthcare, uh, creating you know continuously connected patients and providers, um, all of the fun stuff we talk about and that we're excited about with the future. Um, I guide organizations that build platforms as well as organizations that want to use voice interventions and help them meet in the middle and design tools that work for them and for the patient um, so that everybody wins. Matt, thank you for joining us on the show today as well. We appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Really excited. With that, we'll get to the news. Story number one is a big one from VentureBeat. Amazon launches Alexa presentation language. So as we have watched voice-first technology mature over a very short amount of time, it seems like, since Alexa has come out and since the Echo has come out, the question has come up on this show routinely, when are we going to make that transition fully into multimodal experiences? And when will... um, when will the expectation for the end user start to change that, that multimodal is what, you know, voice doesn't have to just be talking to a black cylinder uh, with no screen. Uh, it can be many other things. And this is sort of our first um, huge move in that direction. There have been several smaller ones. And, Ed, I want to start with you, with what you do with Wellpepper and your line of sight on the industry are you as excited about this announcement as I am and several other folks, or are you a little bit more cautious about it? Um, share with us your thoughts as you read the article and what you think about what Amazon's done here. Um, I'm very excited. And if you've heard me talk about voice, you'll know that I'm a, a proponent of voice and that there are other interfaces and that other interfaces are very helpful. You know, we are visual creatures for the most part. And so being able to hear something and see something at the same time, I think really just expands what we're able to do. Um, We uh, were the winners of the Alexa Diabetes Challenge with a multimodal solution. And it was a solution that had uh, a voice-powered scale and foot scanner. And it also had a mobile app and it had voice interactions. And you know, it was certainly a prototype in early days, but the you know voice to enable somebody to know where to stand on a scale so that they can get um, a picture taken of their feet is basically there's an example there where we're using um, machine learned images and we're using voice together. But I think there's so many more when you think about um, in healthcare in particular, you know how to use medical equipment, how to use medical devices, how to Say you're taking a picture of a wound and, you know, your hands are busy trying to do that, being able to, to use voice to guide someone of how to take a better picture so that the doctor will be able to, uh, or the doctor or the machine learned algorithms will be able to better diagnose what's happening with that wound. I think that, it, you know, I don't want to say it's a long time coming because certainly when Amazon introduced the Echo Show, that was quite a while ago. So I think they saw that, um, for a while. 
Uh, and certainly, you know, you can see that with some of the interfaces even on your phone. Um, it's just a simple interface, but one of my favorite experiences with, um, with Siri was this past summer. I live in Seattle and we had some of the worst uh, air quality in the world, actually, for a few days. Um, and I would always ask Siri what the air quality was, and she would come back with a simple answer and then display to me much more information. And those two things, it was like such a great quick hit experience, but it was also, I'm not going to try and tell you everything you asked me because some of it is going to be much better visually. So I think visual and voice go together. I think what's going to be interesting is designing for these interfaces because the way you give cues in voice and the way you give cues visually is different. And so it's like, you know, if it's, for example, it's very hard to remember lists in voice. So if it's like, you know, the fifth item in the list, if I'm looking at a list, it's very easy for me to know what the fifth item is. If I'm remembering that through voice, it's different. So you're designing voice interfaces differently for interaction. So I think that's where putting the two together is going to be more usable, but it also, I think from a design perspective can be even more challenging to come up with really fantastic experiences. There's a lot of hype and there's a lot of momentum popularly talking about voice tools. And I think when that happens, people get really singular with it. And they're just, they think to themselves, Oh, this is the pinnacle. This is all we need to use. Uh, Just voice everything. Uh, And they forget that there's other mediums that are very useful. The idea that we would not use visual cues with a voice interface is just silly to me. I mean, I, I take a page out of Gladwell's theory when I say that there's not just one universal for communicating with people and influencing and persuading people to take action. Um, the human mind is able to incorporate lots of stimuli coming through it. And for people who are able to hear and see and speak, um, that's a really great option. And for that matter, I really enjoy, for example, using my Echo Show because of the the screen it's got. Not only that, but uh, and this is I'm not a shill for Amazon. I don't I don't get paid by them, but the speakers are pretty amazing. So that being said, having a visually uh, stimulating interface that responds to my voice is just a nice add-on um, in my field and Anne's. And I think Anne, you spoke about this a moment ago. Um, you know. Patients are going to need both of those things. You know, it lowers the barrier to get into uh, a patient into like an interface that's digitally minded without much an- without much anxiety and, and really no training. They can just speak to it. But on top of that, it can return information to them that is easy to see, understand, and follow through with. Now, if we think about this in terms of where voice is going, which is mostly mobile, uh, that's even more impressive and more important. So I'm looking forward to seeing all the creative uh, skills and APLs that get applied uh, through the mobile interfaces of using voice. Uh, and to your point earlier, Bradley, you know, right now people think so heavily towards the smart speaker and like that big black cylinder reminds me of a scene out of one of Kubrick's films, you know, like this like stark black rectangle. And we really are kind of at like the beginning uh, of people's conception of how do you use these interfaces, but the future, as uh, aptly put by Voicebot.ai and Brett Kinsella, is uh, that these smart speakers are really gateway drugs to the future, 
and these screen interfaces with rich uh, templated visuals that can be consumed by the user uh, is just going to maximize the possibilities as well as like what you can create and do with these things and how people use them. I'm particularly interested in this because um, so much of what gets returned to Anne's point um, isn't the same as, sorry, through voice, what gets returned to us in an answer uh, is not giving us a lot of choices, let's say, like you were with a screen interface. So when I type in something in Google, let's say, or Bing, um, you know, I'm getting lots of different options I can click on, although there is some search engine optimization. Voice tends to be a little bit more authoritative in a sense that there's one or two choices or just one return and it says this is the answer. So having a really robust screen interface, I think, gives the user a few more choices, uh, which can sort of mitigate this authority gradient that could be, I think, kind of dangerous when it comes to returning information uh, to users and how they use these products. So that's my initial take on it. I think at a bare minimum, and and you mentioned the Echo Show, which we've had in our house from the beginning when it came out. And, um, you know, one of the known issues with Alexa and just, I guess, voice in general is what are the options? What can I do? It's not written down for me anywhere. You know, if if, if I can speak to this thing on one hand, yeah, the op- options are limitless in a sense, but then... Uh, on the same token, it's limited by my creativity, um, which might be very limiting depending on who, who you're, who you're dealing with and simply having a screen to show options on what you can say, like the echo show does. I, I personally find that very, uh, very helpful. And, and it's interesting to hear you all talk about the healthcare applications of something like this, um, which I find fascinating. And when I look at it, I, I think, how can people use this to enhance the content that they're creating, uh, enhance their own narrative ability or the information that they're trying to get out, uh, no matter whether it's, it's uh, you know, children's books or whether it's, uh, you know, professional learning um, that goes on in corporations or, or whatever it is. It's, it's fascinating to see. So I think the challenge with voice is that it, you know, it is a natural user interface. If I want to communicate with you right here on this podcast, I'm speaking to you. And so our expectations for the usability are so high. But then going back to what you said, I can ask it anything. And so there's this challenge between you know, how do you keep it natural and then how do you, I don't want to say train the users, but you know, think of like the how many years we've been trained to use these, you know, keyboards and input mechanisms on computers. But our expectation is from voice is so much higher. I should just be able to tell it something and it should understand me. Um, And I, that is, you know, the more you can do to surround it and not leave it as a headless interface, um, I think the better you can deliver. But I also think, you know, thinking about video and pictures and especially in a healthcare setting, I think there's a lot of benefit in, in having those multimodal interfaces. We will move on to story number two, which is the voicebot.ai story of the week, voicebot.ai giving voice to a revolution, fantastic news commentary site. If you're listening to this and don't know what voicebot.ai is, I really don't know how that's possible. Uh, Go check them out. (laughs) 
I'm going to co-sign and second that. That is a go-to site for me. Yeah, my, my, uh, yeah, my, my commentary on, on people that don't know what that site is is getting worse and worse every week. Uh, <laughs> you have to know what that is. Alexa adds election information just in time for midterms. This is an interesting one. <laughs> Several times on this show in the three seasons we've been doing it, we have had very interesting conversations related to voice assistants giving information that really out of societal interest needs to be presented in a impartial fashion. Uh, this has come up again and again and again. And here we are again with uh, something along these lines, Matt, I'm going to start with you is Alexa. You can imagine the meeting uh, meetings on top of meetings that a company like Amazon probably had to have about this. Deciding, you know, uh, is this a, do we add information about elections or do we just not even go there? <clears throat> what is your thoughts as you look at this article? And is it a good thing or a bad thing that Alexa has election information uh, and they're taking this on? Well, I mean, look, I, I believe in the pluralistic experiment of America. I love being an American. My family history, just like many people's, doesn't originate here. I mean, majority of us doesn't. And without some of that framework and the creed of America, I'm not here. I'm not benefiting from it. So the idea that a company like Amazon or any other large data companies or retail companies or anybody that produces these kinds of tools uh, would think twice about trying to offer objective and partial information about for voters to make choices. Um, you know, I think not including it is sort of silly. I, uh, it's a huge time right now. Let me take it back for a second. What I would really love more than anything would be to ask that question and sit down with like Orwell and Huxley and ask those guys what they think in a time like now in the United States when there is such a uh, abundance of information and filtering through what matters and doesn't matter becomes very difficult. Um, so I imagine that Amazon in their meetings had these kinds of questions about like the uh, validity and the veracity of the information coming through so that there wasn't an apparent bias, but people could research themselves who they're voting for. I think we need that more than ever. I, I think we haven't done a great job educating people to be critical thinkers. There are some reasons why that are complex. Um, and a lot of people get their information and their education from news sources, which by and large have some influence one direction or another, just based on the nature of how they operate with advertisements. Um, so that being the case, absolutely. If you can offer information to people and you can get them to trust that the information is objective and to their benefit um, to make choices on their own, uh, I say, why not? And ever the more important to do so, to sort of cut through some of the bias and some of the, the frank misinformation that's being levied towards both polar opposites of this country, which brings me to another point. Uh, you know, political perspectives are a spectrum uh, the idea that there is just one side and another side is foolhardy and humbug. So I'm hoping that these kinds of tools and access to information can maybe even function and help us to get away from this 
um, sort of heavy polarity that we look uh, at, at political problems with um, because they're mostly mind-made opposites and they're not real. So I'm optimistic about it. And, uh, you know, I guess from a moral claim perspective, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a bad thing not to offer it, to be honest. Um, I think it was a competitive move. If I was to ask Google Home for information about how I vote or where my, how I register, Google would have that information. So I, I, don't, I don't know if it was so much of a, I mean, certainly there's a political aspect to it, but I think, you know, as Alexa is competing with Google and Google has the backup of the search engine, they need to add things like this. Um, they probably were seeing failed utterances around this topic. So uh, I think it's obviously quite valuable to have that at your fingertips. And so it's a benefit for the end users, but I think it's probably also a, a, you know, a competitive move. It's an interesting insight. Yeah, I completely agree um, that in some sense, they, maybe they didn't have as much of a choice as we're making it out the sound. Oh yeah, I love that perspective. I mean, it's it's likely it's a little bit more of a business angle than it is some sort of ivory tower decision. Well, I will say this: I live here in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, I was just commenting to my wife how upset I am at the fact that I can't turn the TV on or the radio on without hearing. First, it's going to be an ad about Marsha Blackburn. And then there's going to be an ad right after it about Phil Bredesen. And then there's going to be an ad after that ad, ad about why Marsha Blackburn uh, doesn't like that ad about Phil Bredesen. That, and there's going to be another ad and another ad. And it's just Tennessee is a, is a battleground state. There's a lot of diversity here in political opinion, uh, believe it or not. And so we get inundated with political ads. And I bring this up simply to say that... I do applaud Amazon, and I just assume Google is this way as well, for not taking money from political organizations to allow advertising on the platform or to in any way influence what the response is. If I were to go and ask Alexa right now, Alexa, you know, you already know where I live. Who should I vote for and have some garbage from one candidate or the other spew forth? Um, kudos to them for that even that never even being remotely on the table. Um, whatever else they decide to do is icing on the cake. You know, this information they're providing is fine, but uh, I feel like that needs to be said. I think your comment on advertising is interesting because I think there's there's this whole thing with voice about permission and what does it have permission to jump in and tell you. So yeah, I agree. That's a that was a good choice. So with that, we will move on to story number three. From Billboard, Spotify is giving away Google Home Minis with premium family plans. So this is an interesting piece. I encourage people to check, check this out. Um, this really speaks to the competition and that you were just talking about. Share with us your thoughts on what you thought when you saw that Spotify was doing this with Google um, and then maybe some commentary on Google's ecosystem in general, since we haven't really covered that on the show so far. What it made me think of is um, a couple of things. Uh, one, which is, you know, the whole, like how, you know, this, the, that the device is really the thing to get you hooked on the service and that the service, whatever services start to be 
deployed through these devices are really the value as is the value of what it is that you're doing with it. And, you know, so what music are you listening to? What questions are you asking? Um, and then I was also struck by that whole, you know, there's this, there's a lot of people are asking this question about why voice now? And a lot of it actually has to do with the cost of the form factor, you know? And so the, you know, the speaker is, the speakers are incredible as, as Matt said, the, the, fidelity, the way they pick it, picking up the sound, all of these things, but they're cheap. And that is the, almost the Trojan horse. So it's sort of reminded, you know, when you think, oh, well, they're giving away these, these speakers, you know, Amazon was also, and it's probably still is selling the dots in three packs so that either they were all the way around your home or you might actually give them to someone else. So I think it's, it's really a question of the, we get the speakers in the home and then what? What is that the, the gateway to? Um, that's that's basically how I was thinking about it, but mostly because I would say I'm not like a huge expert on on streaming services. And then I guess there's also the question of of yeah the alignment and the the battle here between the the smart speakers and the voice services and this question around as well like how much is voice embedded in other services and how much is it reliant on a very specific device. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'll echo some of Anne's sentiments here, um, as well as some of my own earlier. I mean, this is as part of the continued training and habituation of using voice tools in the home. Um, I will say, I mean, I, I've been a subscriber of Spotify for, I think, as soon as they were available in the U.S. Um, I find music to be the soul of life. We, as humans, learned tone and developed sounds instead of words and sentences before we ever develop language. Uh, and so music really speaks to us sort of in a, you know, down the brainstem kind of way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th I think that offering this as an incentive gets these into people's homes. It also uh, gives them pretty good ways to see that they're, these interfaces can be used for more than just doing things like turning on and off lights but it can be part of like the day to day. So, um, you know, music is for a lot of people kind of a day to day, uh, alarms in the morning, play music. When you're working, you might listen to music at night. People have musical playlists, dinner parties, you know, you have children at home, you put on kids music. Um, it's just part of being human. So it's really to me an easy sort of way to inject these devices into your daily life. Uh, without seeming to be uh, in the way or invasive, it, you see it more of a benefit, um, and then it gets you used to using them. So I know I don't know. I love Spotify. I love voice tech platforms. I love being a part of the movement. So a move like this is sort of a no-brainer to me. Yeah, that's kind of my take. I think what strikes me about this is that um, this is one of these things that we've seen over and over again on this show. Is that Amazon, when Amazon wants to do something, they either do it themselves or they go make an acquisition. And yeah, there's some exceptions to that. One is the Kohl's partnership that they did last year that we talked about on the show, where they put Amazon Echo devices in Kohl's. But even then, there was speculation around that, that that was a precursor to an acquisition. With Google, they had been much more open to partnerships um, so, you know, Amazon didn't partner with Ring and they acquired Ring and then they started distributing smart home stuff, you know, themselves. 
Google has partnered with Walmart. Uh, they partnered with Lowe's. Uh, here they are partnering with Spotify. I could go on. With y'all's line of sight on this, you know, you've got a specific line of sight and it's obviously coming out of healthcare, but I'm just curious as to your um, gut feel on this or if you have any sort of uh, thoughts, which one do you think is better? So I used to work at Microsoft and I was there for 10 years and Microsoft had both, uh, you know, both mentalities. So there was the, we have to own everything and we're going to get into everyone's business. And then there was also a very large partner ecosystem that, you know, Windows would not have been successful without. So I've seen both sides of it. And some of it I think is just an evolution of the company. So Amazon is, you know, absolutely on top with online retailing and they have partners there, but they're tiny partners, you know, like they're all of the small vendors who are making things available. And I think it, it, that probably is infusing some of their other businesses. And so I think that's probably, you know, why they're kind of going down this path of looking at everything of like, we've got to do the best job. Plus I think them, you know, they talk about their relentless customer focus. And if that's your focus, sometimes you do go down this path of like the only way to deliver the best experience for my customers that I own everything end to end. Um, I think long-term ecosystems are the things that win, they become stronger. And then certain categories, organizations start to say, okay, actually, I want to own that category. I mean, it'll be interesting because, you know, Google has YouTube, which has now got a streaming music um, service. So maybe they're, it's like they're partnering to learn more about it. I don't know. Um, you see both philosophies, you see them evolve depending on where the market is and where the company is. Google's a, you know, in, in this space of cloud services and things, uh, well, not the cloud services, but Google's a, a little bit of an older company than, than Amazon, at least um, in these kind of spaces where you're going to partner with other large companies. So it'll be interesting to see if Amazon changes there at all. I think over time, you see companies going in and out of that. We're partnering, we're owning, we're partnering, we're owning. YouTube is a great example. You know, Amazon obviously incorporated YouTube into the Echo Show when it launched. And then Google said, no, (laughs) no. Uh, not not really. And uh, and so there became this back and forth and it was very evident. And it's even it's clear even now that Amazon really doesn't have a playbook for that sort of thing. They've created their own video service. Uh, you can still access YouTube through the Echo Show. VoiceBot's written about that. It's wonky. Most people aren't going to do it. Uh, Amazon's got their own video service that they've rolled out in the aftermath of this YouTube Echo Show clash. But uh, it's been interesting to watch that because that's been a great example of how Amazon really doesn't understand. There's no muscle memory for in in the organization for what to do if someone doesn't like play ball or is not an acquisition target. Uh, I think Anne really uh, nailed it. Um, I've heard it said in one way or another that... um, if you're not with Google, Amazon, Microsoft, the big boys, then anything you're doing is essentially market research for them and they'll either copy it or buy you. <laughs> and uh, that's sort of a reality. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what is a partnership? What is a, 
uh, acquisition. I mean, what's the difference at times? I mean, especially if there's capital involved, um, one, one is just, I mean, it's just a renaming of, of a similar method. The advantage of having these platforms to me is just that people can use their creative energies in diverse ways and the use cases become infinite. I mean, anthropologists have written about that for years. Psychologists have written about that for years. Uh, you know, human in innovations pretty much limitless. So, um, you know, I don't really have a hard opinion one way or the other. I think that if you're creating uh, a use case on these platforms that matters and that's interesting and useful, then great. Um, and if, if these companies want to approach you as a partner or an acquisition, then okay. Um, but as a end user, me, uh, I still benefit. So I think from uh, a guy that also takes snaps and also at times sits on the sideline watching other people play, um, I'm happy with both. We will move on to story number four, which is a two-parter. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to introduce both of these stories just for the purpose of opening up a broader um, conversation here on, on healthcare. Both these stories were, did not actually come from this week, but they're pretty recent. The first story here is 4A, Suki AI-based voice assistant tops 1,000 patient encounters a week. We've mentioned Suki on this show before. Interesting company to say the least. Story 4B, Quita Health launches Lisa, a voice-based social wellness app for seniors. Both of these are fairly recent. I wanted to mention both. Uh, we've got two fantastic health experts on the show, and I'm going to start with you. I want to get your thoughts on both of these and, you know, walk us through uh, what stood out to you, if anything, with both of these stories. I'm sure you know these people or have met them along the path um, in growing well pepper. Um, what are your thoughts? And, you know, just share with us your excitement on healthcare and voice in general while you do it. Uh, I'd love to hear <laughs> your perspective. Um, well, I'll start with my excitement then, which is, um, I think what we've seen is the people really do want to engage with voice assistants and, you know, going back to the natural, um, user interface, so much of what happens in healthcare is an interview and a back and forth and a conversation. So <clears throat> I think voice is a great um, interface there. Um, I've been watching um, Suki since um, the CEO, Punit Sony, um, he was just posting on LinkedIn of when they were completely in stealth mode and they've gone through three different names and I was just interested because, you know, talking about machine learning and um, AI and healthcare. And so anytime something comes up, you want to see what's going on there. So it's been interesting to sort of watch them go from, I'm not even sure they knew what they were doing, to coming into this, solving this real problem of um, basically what we're hiring people to do right now, which is scribes. And I have to say, you know, having sat in a doctor's office where there was a scribe, I didn't enjoy the experience as a patient because I was just like, I'm telling you my doctor and then there's someone writing this all down and I have no idea who that person is and I have no relationship with them. So I think having a virtual scribe is huge. Um, what I'm really interested about and, and Suki, you know, they like they're disclosing what they want to disclose and they're being very good about like how they position. I don't know what a thousand patient encounters is like, I remember, like I, you know, I read the article, I went back to their website. I was looking at what, um, Sunit, uh, Pony has been 
that's the same. Sorry, I'm getting the same wrong. Uh, was posting on LinkedIn to sort of say, how are you defining that? Like, what's an encounter? Is every sentence I say an encounter? So, like, I'm always suspicious of of stats. Also, you know, knowing my my own stats, you got always got to question the stats that are made up by someone. Um, how they're defining it? What's what is that? I don't know what that encounter is. It's because the fact they didn't they didn't say patient um, appointments leads me to believe that it might be a slightly bigger number. Now, that said, I think what they're doing is very interesting. And I had a lot of questions, though, around, you know, if you think about the ability to apply machine learning and draw insights from the information that's in the EMR, it's very difficult to do that because it's basically locked in. So are they capturing exact transcripts? They must be if they're plugging stuff into the, you know, basically doing the translation of voice to language and putting it in the EMR record. So the data, this is exactly this one of the situations. They're solving a real problem for doctors, you know, especially when they're talking about decreasing um, documentation and decreasing visit time. So they're solving a real problem. But I think what the, you know, the end game here, or the most interesting thing is they've got all the data and they can do analysis on it because it's not being they're getting it before it gets locked into the EMR. So it's almost like they're listening, the listening channel on top of the EMR. So that's, I've actually thought about that one a lot more uh, just because I have been following that company for a long time. Um, the, the other example, I mean, <laughs> the, uh, the, everybody you know, now points to the, that Saturday Night Live sketch of AARP uh, partnering with Alexa. It's almost like, I feel like that sketch, they should have, they should have actually partnered with Alexa at that exact moment because I thought so much of it, it was both hilarious, but also very gentle and very real in that, you know, that whole idea of the Alexa or other voice assistants not getting mad if you ask the same question over and over again, which sometimes people do when they get old and then they get for, forgetful. So I, again, and you know, I think there's a, a great interface there, although I do worry that every time I see a sort of, you know, we've created a companion for seniors, I get worried because that's actually not how we should be dealing with the problem of an aging population. You know, we should be thinking about how to live differently. You know, to me, the, the better example was the example of having university students boarding with seniors who want to live in, you know, the seniors want to stay in their homes, but maybe can't afford it or need some extra help with things. Like those are the, let's, let's drive real human community as well. Let's not just assume that various technologies will stand in for that, that human connection, even, you know, even if those technologies are actually getting better. And I know I started this by saying that they do drive that human connection, but they need to augment it as well as, you know, augment it for things where, where, you don't get as much benefit from necessarily having a human. Like there's also those examples where people will tell things to voice devices that they wouldn't tell to people. So that's where things could become also quite interesting with seniors is, you know, let's, let's enable that. And then let's do something when we're learning these things. Excellent. Matt, your thoughts. I pretty much agree with everything Anne said. I mean, not to turn into the laudatory I was going to say, Matt, we need to, we need a little, uh, controversy here. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm trying to think like, what can I say? This is outright disagree with you. And I, I can't, 
Um, well, I will throw this in there. You know, Matt, you and I were at, uh, I, I'll always have this memory and you, uh, <clears throat> you mentioned the, um, AARP SNL skit. And, uh, you know, we did an event in Boston over the summer, um, involving voice and healthcare. And, uh, and I asked Laurie Orlov, who's a super sharp, uh, analyst in the field, you know, her thoughts, um, on that clip and, and boy, she did not like that. <laughs> Uh, she didn't like that one bit. I thought it was funny, but, uh, and she had some good critiques of it, but, uh, I, I won't forget that. I, I asked that in public and, uh, got, got a response I was not expecting. Um, yeah, I, I remember that at the, uh, conference when she said she both loved and hated it. She loved it for the attention it brought. She hated it for the stereotypes of boomers using technology. And, uh, you know, my parents are, are boomers and they've got, an echo show. They use voice on their phones. They're pretty active with technology. Now they tend to be a little bit less flexible with trying new things in technology. And I'm not really sure if that's just my parents or if that's boomers in general, but uh, you know, most of them that I've encountered have been open to it. So I think on the one hand, she's right. On the other hand, it's still a, a brave new world for them uh, because they were completely raised and educated in analog. And I think the three of us on this phone call. I know for me, uh, I was, my early education was analog. And then towards the end of my education in college and grad school it was all digital. So I basically existed before and after. So I'm pretty comfortable with the idea. Um, you know, just to finish up and follow up really quickly on what Ann said in your initial question, um, healthcare having voice tools to me, the biggest advantage is going to be that practitioners can be hands-on and not go from screen to body and body to screen. Um, and if Suki's doing that, great. I think it's going to be a noisy space. I'm actually working on two or three different tools with different organizations doing similar type work. Um, and I think that the advantage is real from efficiency, from safety, from quality, but more importantly, healing. Um, you know, a practitioner that isn't distracted by moving from one attention source to another, uh, that can be completely and totally immersed in the moment with a patient. Uh, the patient responds to that. I mean, there's some really great research as well as just, I think, maxims of healthcare that um, an emotional integration between provider and patient can, can speed healing uh, and can give trust to a patient to make them and their brain look at the scenario and say, oh, this will end and I will recover. Uh, the value of that that can be brought through voice platforms is immeasurable. Um, and what's interesting to me is, is, is voice is really going to return healthcare to what it used to really be, which was this very direct, very intimate one-to-one -one relationship with a patient and a provider. Um, the digital interface will be there just be in the background where it should be. Um, I think, I think Matt's points are dead on on the, just the, it needs to be seamless and it needs, and that's, I think some of the benefit of voice is that it can manage to not get in your way. Um, I think there's a whole question that Matt just pointed out at the um, who's going to win in this, particularly the space that Suki's in. Cause I know, you know, basically they're, they're becoming an interface on top of the EMR for entering the EMR. And I'm not sure the EMRs are going to sit around and just let that happen. Exactly. I've thought <laughs> a lot about that too. I mean, where do they, jump in on this and say, you know, like rebound the ball and elbow everyone out of the way. Actually, yeah. And, 
And they, I mean, this is, that's their core business. So, I mean, that's, it'll be, it's going to be an interesting few years, I think. Yeah. And I think the other thing to think about Anne and Brad and the audience is we, we tend to look at voice so much similarly to screen. It's not, I mean, voice is beyond iteration and so much of the stuff that's coming out is still like on voice is built as an iteration machine. But, you know, we use these terms, AI, machine learning, but we don't really talk about why that's different. I mean, there's serendipity, there's randomness and variability in the responses you can get. Um, there are, when it's ready, prompts that can come not from the person, but from the interface itself. There's passive monitoring that can happen behind the scenes that you don't even know is going on, but works to your benefit. I mean, uh, last year I was at a presentation at Carnegie Mellon with the Amazon Fund and there was a researcher finishing his PhD and he had created some amazing software to read um, the sound signals from uh, appliances and, and pipes in your house. And he could tell you like what kind of fridge you had and what engine it was running and how many liters of fluid you were flushing uh, through your pipes just from the sensitivity of the microphones um, these are the things that we need to think about conceptually that are beyond iteration. And I th we're not there yet. I mean, it's such an early idea that people are still conceptually thinking about voice as just a replacement for a screen. Doing so minimizes the power of this technology, in my mind, especially in healthcare. It's a great note to close on. And Matt, Appreciate both of y'all taking the time to be on the show, sharing your experience, sharing your expertise, not with not just me, but the audience as well. It's greatly appreciated. Pleased to be here, Bradley. Ann, it was nice chatting with you today. Yes, it was great. And thank Brad, thanks for those putting together all those articles. Cause I think you know we can talk a lot about voice, but commenting on what's going on in the real world is uh, is definitely really fun. I appreciate that. For season three, episode seven of This Week in Voice. Thank you for listening, and until next time.